So the passage Brian will be speaking to us on just a minute will be comes from Luke chapter two, Luke chapter two, forty one to fifty two. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was twelve years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Last night I was at a quiz evening. And uh, the quiz master was one Martin Jesty who loves these things. And uh, he'd set up a really brilliant quiz for us. And there was one round which was very, very clever. Well, I thought it was very clever. It probably isn't. But um, it seemed clever to me. You see, the last... um, Every time you answered a question, the last letter of your answer, if you got the right answer, was the first letter of the correct answer of the next question. Which is great, so long as you don't go wrong part the way through, because that can really mess you up. And you have these moments of intense self-doubt when you know that, alphabetically... The middle dwarf is definitely grumpy, but it's got to start with an N. And you you get a little bit confused. Well, Luke's gospel is a little bit like that round. Because when you get to the end of the round, the last letter of your last answer was also the first letter of your first answer, if you got them both correct and all the other ones in between. Or at least you'd managed to recover it. And you see, Luke's Gospel is a bit like that, because Luke's Gospel begins in the temple with Zechariah. It's his his week on. And it ends in the temple with the disciples praising God, right at the end of chapter 24. And in between, Luke tells the story of the transition of the temple from the place where Zechariah goes to keep his one week's worth of duty to us, the people of God. There's this transition. And here we come, that's, that's all in the background. That's, you've got that one for extra. And it's important because the temple means something. The temple is the place where God meets people. The gospel began there 
in the heart of the old Jewish faith. In those days, if God and man were going to come together, it was going to happen in the temple. Nowhere else. That's where it was going to happen. It was the place in the religion of the ancient Israelites where all of the reminders of what they had came together. It reminded them of their their sonship, not their daughtership. And the reason is because as sons, the whole nation were the inheritors of the promise of God. Obviously, in their culture, girls didn't get anything. And so the whole nation were sons. It's also the place where they remembered the glory of God. From the time when in the tabernacle they would have had the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, they remembered the glory of God in the temple. They remembered that this was the place where worship was to be given to God. Nowhere else, just here. They remembered the giving of the law and they remembered the promises that were theirs by right. This is the place where we find Jesus in this story. We've got a little boy, age 12, quite likely prepubescent. And I always say that you should ask two questions when you read a story in the Bible. Two questions. What does it tell me about God? And what does it tell me about me, you, us, people, generally? Somewhere amongst those, those two answers to those two questions, we find what it is God's trying to say to us as individuals, as a church, and as the people of God. Now, leaving aside the image of Jesus discussing the law with the religious leaders of the day, the word of God, the eternal word of God, Jesus discussing the word of God with some teachers. Quite a nice little bit of godly humour going on in there. If you leave that to one side for a second, and you leave aside the fact that he's 12 and he's coming of age in the Jewish culture, and what that might mean in terms of the start of a revelation of his ministry as Messiah, if you put those things to one side, I want you to think about this story from the perspective of being parents. Now, Mary and Joseph, having had the birth of this child announced by angels, accompanied by heavenly portents, a great big star in the sky, prophesied about being surrounded by foreign visits and political unrest, the slaughtering of the innocents, manage to lose him. They've been entrusted with one little boy and they've managed to lose him. Years ago, Sarah and I were shopping in Norbury, in South London, in Iceland. And it was the week that Jamie Bulger was murdered. 
And we had just one child. Did we have one child or did we have two? We had two. But the other one was, the other one was so small he couldn't escape from anything. Michael was in the trolley. Sarah and I wandered around the corner, as you do, looking at crispy pancakes or whatever it was that took our attention. And when we came back, our trolley was bereft of one child. But it's okay, because, you know, he's in Iceland, isn't he? He's kind of gone far. And we do that thing that you probably have done when you're trying to find somebody in a supermarket or a big shop. You walk up and down the aisles, don't you? And Murphy's Law and my experience means that when you do that the first two or three times, your wife, husband, whoever it is you're looking for, is going to be at the end of an aisle, walking in the opposite direction, looking for you. And you can miss each other a couple of times. But after a couple of times, the anxiety level starts to rise. And the image that was caught on the CCTV in the shopping centre of a big boy leading a little boy away becomes very much what's at the front of your mind. And uh, I ran to the doorway and gave two ladies a description of of a little blonde boy and what he was wearing. And I said, if somebody tries to take him out of the shop, stop him. It's my son. And uh, now I'm just doing the, the... I'm not quite crying, but I'm very close to it. And Sarah's doing like eyes, and we're up and down the shop. We can't find him. And then we spot him. He's standing on the windowsill, looking out the window, underneath a concrete staircase with a little girl. Of course, I was overcome with such relief, I hugged him to myself. I nearly beat him to death. I was so, so angry. In this very real story of parents with a little boy, I want to suggest to you that we have a pattern for getting back to Jesus when we, like Mary and Joseph, despite the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit, that we've got a Bible, that we've put our life in his hands and sworn to him for all eternity, manage to move ourselves further away from him than we would like to admit. The first thing that this pair of parents do, their first step, is they recognise the absence. They get to the end of that first day, and you can picture it, can't you? Jesus is 12. What do 12-year-old boys do at 5 o'clock? They eat. They eat everything in sight. And they get to tea time. Things were a bit different back then. They wouldn't have gone to a a, a happy eater or a little chef or anything like that. They'd have lit a fire. They'd have been sat in groups. There would have been quite a few people on the road. They've just left the Passover celebrations in the city. There'd have been loads of people to and fro. And they'd have sat down in, maybe in family groups, maybe in slightly extended family groups, if they'd taken Grandma and Granddad up with them, and aunt, Uncle Bert and Auntie Gertie and all that lot, and the cousins. And they'd have sat around the fire and they'd have started cooking. And suddenly you realise that the stomach on legs that was there yesterday isn't there today. 
And obviously, Mary knows that Joseph was responsible for bringing him, and Joseph is absolutely certain that he was meant to be with his mum. And then they begin going around the extended family's fireplaces, looking to see whether he's gone off with the weird cousins from Ramoth Gilead. You know, and they're looking, and slowly the anxiety level's going up. They can't find him. And at some point, having questioned the bigger children who should have had their eye on him, they realise that nobody's seen him since they walked out the blinking gates. You have to recognise the absence. There's all kinds of reasons why we can move ourselves away from Jesus. They can be good things that do it. You can move very easily from service to duty. It can happen really easily. It can happen really easily for people like us. And you realise that you're doing something and that the motivation for doing it has somehow shifted. I once heard a church treasurer in his resignation speech say, my service amongst you is no longer a joy. He wasn't saying, you're all miserable gits and you don't give enough. He was actually saying, I, I need to get my focus back on the real thing, the one who gave his life for me. What sort of things can stop us and put us off target? Growing cold. And until we recognise that absence, there's no going back. Charity can do it. You can get so caught up with trying to transform the physical world that you forget that actually the church's mission isn't only about trying to make earth more like heaven, but it is to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. I, uh, I was talking to, to our folks this morning and you see we could resolve global warming. We could make it that everybody on the face of the earth gets enough to eat and clean water to drink every day. We could do all of that. But that wouldn't solve the issue of the gap that is between us and God. Only, only Jesus can do that. Now, I'm not saying to you, go home and cancel your standing orders. No way. No way. But we need to be careful that our motivations remain the ones that we started out with. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Francis of Assisi. And you see, recognising the absence is a humbling thing. A few years ago, I was in a, a group of ministers and we were reading a book together. Always a dangerous thing, reading. And uh, we were reading a book called Under the Unpredictable Plant. 
And uh, it was a good book. It was by a chap called Eugene Peterson, and it's one of a trilogy. And uh, basically what he does is he looks at Christian ministry through a lens, through the lens of the story of Jonah. And he talks about a comparison between the things that God wants us to do, Nineveh, and the things that are attractive and build us kudos and make us loved by people, Tarshish. And uh, I had a real, real wobble part of the way through this book because I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, somewhere along the way, I seem to have got off track. And I feel like I'm moving more in the direction of Tarshish than Nineveh. Now, the crucial thing about recognising the absence is you would be really foolish to do another day's journey and hope that he turns up, wouldn't you? So I took a bit of a step. I went to the leaders and I thought, I'm going to have to tell them what it feels like for me. And they might sack me. Or suspend me. Or send me on gardening leave. Or do any of the things that I don't want them to do. Expecting the worst. And being surprised by God's grace. And the graciousness of his people is probably the place where most of us live most of the time. And that's exactly where I found myself. But if you've ever found yourself growing cold, feeling distant from God, then please be encouraged. You've taken the first step. Once you've recognised the absence, you've taken the first step. You're part of the way to the solution. And that's that's a good thing. It's a humbling thing, but it's a good thing. And the second step is go back to where you last saw him. Once you recognise that he's not there, what do his mum and dad do? They ask everybody, because they're panicking. They realise that nobody has seen him since they left the city, so that's where they go. Now, there'll be a time in your life when you came back from spring harvest, you know, when everything was absolutely wonderful. Well, get back there. Go back and do the things that you were doing that made it right, that one-hour quiet time in the morning. Whatever it was that you were doing that you're not doing now, whatever it is that's moved you away, go back to when it was okay. Go back and do those things. Go to those places. Get beside those people, perhaps. They go back. They return to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. The city must have been jam-packed with people from all over the place. Now, not to lampoon anybody, but the reality is that if you live out in the country and you've got to go to the city for a major religious festival, you're going to make the most of it whilst you're there. You're going to go and have a look at whatever the buildings are that you want to look at. You're going to meet some of your relatives that you don't see from one year to the next only when you go up to Jerusalem because we're not talking about hopping on a bus and it being 25 minutes. We're talking about days of walking to get there. You're not just going to get in, run into the temple, make your sacrifice and nip home again. There's a week-long festival going on. You're going to take part in all of it and then on top of that, you're going to make the most of the opportunity that you've got whilst you're there. The place was throbbing. 
I really should have put numbers on these pages. <laughs> Much like it's going to be when this little boy comes back riding on a donkey. He'll be riding on a donkey towards betrayal, torture and crucifixion in a crowded city. Now just to go back to being a parent again. Those of you that are parents would probably have a good idea what this feels like. Those of you that aren't, imagine what your mum and dad would have felt like if it was you. A whacking great city. And a 12 year old boy. You've taken him to Madame Tussauds. You've taken him to see the Tower of London, where do you start looking? A 12-year-old boy, on his own, where's he going to have gone? You check all the hamburger stalls first, obviously, because he's hungry. What on earth must they have felt like? Three days, can you imagine looking for your boy for three days? At the end of that third day, they must have been going crazy. I, don't ima- I can't imagine what the conversation was when they finally said, well, we've looked everywhere else, we might as well try the temple. And off they go, and that's where they find him. Three days of searching. They visited all the relatives' houses, all the places they'd been hoping to find him. And then they try the temple, and they find him. And all of that fear and worry explodes into intense relief. And joy at finding him. No, not a bit of it. They are just like us. Just like me. It doesn't say that they nearly beat him to death. But it does say... What are you doing? Where have you been? How could you treat us like this? A completely parent-centric view of the world. And isn't that how we are? When our children are naughty, they only do it to annoy us, don't they? And obviously, when we annoy them, it's entirely intentional. They will be able to tell us that. They do tell us that at the top of their voices. Well, obviously not my children, but yours would. Um, Mine are perfect. (laughs) When we've recognised the absence, we go back and we have to humble ourselves once more. Sometimes it means that we've got to stop doing something for a while or even for good. Sometimes it means going and sharing our need with another person, a brother or sister. Sometimes it means asking for some help. For Mary and Joseph, it wasn't a quick fix. They turned around and they went back. For three days they looked for him. For three days. I can't imagine how... 20 minutes would have driven me mad. And for us it may involve some pain, some anguish, some mental torment. But the rewards are worth it. Because you recognise the absence, you go back to where you last saw Jesus. And to use the words that are in the passage, prepare to be astonished or amazed. When I read the title for this sermon, I got in a bit of a panic. Because it said, the first title I was given was Encounters with Jesus. And I thought, well, in this story, is mum and dad losing, and the encounter with Jesus is about six words. The teachers were amazed at his questions and answers. 
what do you do with that? But actually, when you read the whole of the story and you get back close to Jesus, his parents are astonished. They are angry. They are no doubt angry. And they say, what on earth are you doing here? And like every single 12-year-old, Jesus, completely unfazed by all of the panic that they've been experiencing, says, well, where else would I be but in my father's house? Imagine being Joseph and hearing those words. The lengths you've gone to to give this boy a name, to bring him up in your carpenter's workshop, his father's house is where you live, isn't it? Sometimes we, we, we read these words, don't we? We have no idea. How would that feel to Joseph to hear those words? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Talk about rubbing your nose in it. But you see, when we get back close to Jesus, it's never going to be like we thought it was going to be. We make all these ideas up, don't we? And it's always more. Jesus is always more gracious, more loving, more accepting than I imagine he's going to be. He's always more than I can imagine. Always. My expectations are never left hanging with Jesus. Never. His mum and dad give us three steps. Recognise the absence. Go back to where you last saw him and stand by to be astonished. Stand by to be amazed. What does this all tell us about ourselves? Well, when I read it, I can't help but, but feel just like Mary and Joseph. I can imagine exactly how they felt. And I'm thinking at the end of it, boy, haven't I, haven't I just really made a fool of myself? All the revelations that I've had about this boy and I lose him, all of my great parenting skills that I bring to bear upon this child, one child and I manage to lose my temper with him when I finally find him again. And despite the fact that the angels have spoken to me and I've heard the prophecies, despite all of that, here I am and the last place I look is the place where it all began, in the temple. Great parenting skills, Brian. That's how I find, that's what it tells me about myself. It tells me that, that I am able to fail, and able to miss the point, and able to go off in my own direction, and able to do all of those things, and what does it tell me about Jesus? What does it tell me about God? And obviously, I don't want you to, to sit there feeling too comfortable. If I'm able to do it, I suspect that you are too. We're all in this together. We're all capable, aren't we, of doing some really mindless things. You know, I know men are better at it than women, but to be honest, we do all manage it. We all need saving. 
And what does it tell me about Jesus? That, that however, and for whatever reason, I lose him. He is able to astound me with his knowledge and with his grace. What does it tell me about God? It tells me that his plan, the starting in the temple, this story in the temple, the finishing with his people praising in the temple, his plan as shown to us by Luke, is way bigger, way more intricate, way more perfect than I'm able to come up with. What else does it tell me about God? It tells me that this little boy, lost and alone in a city, completely at risk, who argues effectively with the teachers and the theologians of his day, really is the Son of God. He would one day come back to that same city. He'd carry my sins, your sins on a cross. He'd pay the ultimate price for them and having been raised from the dead, he would offer to you and me and to everything that on the earth that's got a pulse, salvation, based not on our own merits but rooted entirely in the love of his Father, won by his own passion and assured by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He would open up for you and me a new and living way to know God. This little boy, lost and arguing in the temple, would one day take us, you and me, and he would build us together, not as individuals, but together into the dwelling place where he will deign to live by his Spirit. Hallelujah. What a saviour. What a saviour. Recognise the absence. Go back to when you were close with him. If it's all great for you at the moment, brilliant. But if it's not, get back. Let him amaze you by his grace. Let him astound you with his love and his willingness to work with us. And if that wasn't enough, he works with Methodists, with Anglicans, with Catholics. What a saviour we have.